morning and happy resurrection day to all of you may God's blessings be upon all of us let's go over a couple of announcements today we'll skip on down to number six there will be no evening service tonight because of our holiday we will resume next week six o'clock evening meal and then Bible study thereafter we have a new schedule on the monthly communion setup. Uh, 
There's a copy on the board in the hallway. Please peruse through that when you get an opportunity to know your what dates your duties are on. Uh, one message that uh, is not in the bulletin, the men's bathroom has a broken toilet in it. Therefore, we cannot use the broken toilet. So gentlemen, if you are in need to use a toilet, there is one in the ladies' room, but please knock and announce yourself before you enter to make sure that uh, everything is polite and cordial. Okay. Do we have any uh, updates on our membership that aren't here? Uh, Ken, how's how's Della doing? Well, she finally got the brick from around her neck. She took the life test out. Okay, so she's no longer need to use it right now. Well, we go for a heart cat Wednesday. Okay. Go and look around and see what if they can see anything. Now, is she going to be overnight there, or will she be uh, well, outpatient? Well, some, it depends on the patient, if, mm. if they keep her. Mm. But I don't know, she's got to lay still for six hours or something like that, having a heart attack. Okay, well, well, and that's Wednesday. It depends on if she does all right, then they'll let her go. Okay. Over the sleep clinic, she's got to stay overnight and they're going to see how well she sleeps. With do, you ever, do you ever think in your retirement you would be this busy? Yeah. It's like another career path, isn't it? You know, going to the doctor. People should have your own parking space there for as often as you go. Boy, boy, boy. That's just, that's just hard. Well, we will keep you in prayer until Bella, we love her and we miss her. Okay. Any updates on, on uh, Tom Roth? Have you heard anything? I Jeff? talked to Tom Roth last week and he seems to be doing well. I talked to him for a while. Joshua's still living there, so okay. that's a plus. Okay. You did tell him that uh, we're praying for him and that uh, we want to, we'd love to see him back here. Brother Ed Riffle, how's your shoulder doing? Oh, great. <laughs> okay, good. Any other uh, comments, prayer requests from anybody out there that we can uh, put to the list? And I would like to say welcome to our visitors. And as always, brothers and sisters, let's uh, make them all feel at home and welcome because you never know when you entertain angels unaware. Right? Amen. Okay, if there are no other, no other comments or prayer requests, may I direct your attention to the scripture for meditation taken from the book of Jonah. That'll be chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, and that'll be page 1436 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Brandon, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer? Gracious God, we uh, come before you today. We thank you for three days. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for the promises that you've made us, Lord. We thank you for the forgiveness and the mercy that you give to us every day. Father, we just pray that you continue to be with us, our families, our friends, this nation. Pray that you continue to bless us, Lord. Overall, Lord, we just pray that you Amen. Please remain standing. Good morning. If you all will turn with me in the brown to number 216.
Easter related? Mrs. Marshall? 217. Is there a reason for this in? Request for it in the house. Okay, thank you. 217. <coughs> scripture reading from this morning is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, and it'll be chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, and that'll be page 1789 in your pew Bible. When you come to that passage, please stand with us. First Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 20. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
By the gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and the last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether, then, it was I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. Preach that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been preached, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ was indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading. You all will turn with me again. 222 in the brown.
Our text of scripture this morning is 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to hear about resurrection, this is the chapter. A whole chapter is devoted by the Apostle Paul to this subject. This morning I want to talk to you about the gospel or the good news of resurrection. I believe it is sometimes missed, even by believers, just how important the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian hope of eternal life. This is Holy Week. Everywhere this week, great emphasis has been laid upon the work of Christ on the cross for sinners. Jared did a good job of teaching on that this morning. And... Now we come to talk about resurrection. But isn't it also true that in our understanding of the gospel, we have concentrated more upon the cross than we do upon the open tomb? Think about it. Is not the cross central in the minds of people as they think of salvation from sin? I've never seen a pendant of a person wearing a pendant depicting an open tomb. Anyone ever see that? But we see crosses everywhere, right? Even on some people, you have to think, "Mm, do they know what the cross is about? Big crosses hanging this low, little crosses, crosses in the earrings. And so forth. My point in all of this is not to create a new lopsided doctrinal emphasis by talking about the resurrection. But to bring more of a balance in our understanding by showing that the gospel of Christ is a gospel of resurrection as well as a gospel of crucifixion. It's about life as well as about death it's gospel about an open tomb as well as a rugged cross it's a gospel of joy and anticipation as well as a gospel of sorrow and retrospection it's a gospel for the present and the future as well as a gospel of the past And so it is with these things in mind that I direct your thoughts to Paul's treatise on the resurrection, which, as I noted, is written to the Corinthian church of his day, 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter deals with the subject of resurrection. Not going to do the whole chapter, so rest. Okay. (laughs) But let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this scripture. Thank you for Paul's emphasis. We hear of the cross in our day. People wear crosses. 
and I'm wondering if they even know what that's about sometime. But we want to look today at the open tomb, the idea of the resurrection. I'm so glad you went to the cross, but I'm also so very happy and pleased that when they put you in a tomb and covered it over with a stone, you didn't stay there. You came out three days later victorious over our last enemy, which is death. Pray that you'll bless our time together. Meet with us, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Use your word to reach into our heart. In Christ's name, amen. We want to look at three important considerations concerning the resurrection. Number one, firstly, the role of the resurrection in the gospel message. Number two, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And number three, the importance of the resurrection for our own daily living. So firstly then, the role of the resurrection in the gospel message. If you're in 1 Corinthians there, let's look at the first four verses or so. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and of which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you at the of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers of the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The first thing which we observe here is that the teaching of the resurrection was part and portion of the gospel which Paul preached to the Corinthian church. Verse 1 taken with verse 2 links the preaching of the gospel with the word of God in which the Corinthians believed and took their stand. The gospel which I preached to you, he says, the word which I preached to you. Okay, what was this gospel or word from God which Corinthians received and took their stand upon and believed? Verse 3 and 4. That Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Boy, there you have it. There's the gospel, if you wanted it, in two verses of the Bible. is laid out for you right there. Now, of course, the scriptures have much more to say about that and implications of it and so forth, but there's the heart of it. So it's evident that the gospel concerned more than the cross of Christ. It's more than a message of redemption. It is more than the story of atonement. The gospel includes these things, to be sure, but it also includes the glorious truth of resurrection from the dead and the triumph of the open tomb. We get no idea from Paul's teaching here that the doctrine of a resurrection is somehow inferior to the death and burial of Christ. 
Some will say, well, I mean, it's listed last in the list of three. Well, that's true, but it's listed last not to denote inferiority, but to show order of propriety. You can't have resurrection until there's death and burial. So that's why it's listed where it's listed. I'll say more of the importance of the resurrection later, but for now, note from verse 2 that the gospel which Paul preached, which the Corinthians believed and acted upon, and which included the teaching of the resurrection, is the gospel by which you are saved. Verse 2. The gospel which saves, brethren, is the gospel of resurrection as well as the gospel of the cross. This makes the resurrection more than an afterthought. It makes the resurrection central to salvation. The resurrection then is part of the good news of the gospel. The second thing to note here is that all of the ingredients of the gospel occurred, there's that phrase, according to the scriptures. And you will see that little phrase attached to all which the apostle defines here in terms of the gospel. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse 3, he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This little phrase, almost ignored by some, is vital to our understanding of the person and mission of Christ. I mean, who was this Jesus of Nazareth, and what was his mission? Was he a prophet? Certainly. Good man? Yes. A great teacher? Most definitely. Yet all of these designations fall short of the total picture. The doctrine which Paul delivered, which he considered to be of first importance, verse 3, had to do with a Messiah. That's the Hebrew for Christ. And it means the anointed one. So you have the word Messiah for Old Testament scriptures. You have the word Christ for New Testament scriptures. They both are interpreted the same way. One's in Hebrew, one's in Greek. But they mean the anointed one. The anointed one of God whose coming and mission was predicted in the Holy Scriptures and fulfilled in these three works. Death, burial, resurrection. This tells us that Jesus was more than a man in the human sense. He was the Son of God come down to dwell among us and to carry out the prophecies of Scripture in which God himself promised a Savior for sinners. And it is these three works, as prophesied in Scripture, fulfilled in Christ, which qualifies Jesus and Jesus alone to be the Savior of sinners. No other religion in the world presents to us a Savior who meets and fulfills these three works of redemption. 
This is why Peter said to the Jews of his day. I'm reading from Peter. By the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He had just healed a lame man there on that occasion. And he goes on. There is salvation in no one else, referring to Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, verse 10 and following. No other name of a person that can save? Oh. No Mohammed for the Mohammedans, no Confucius, no Buddha, no Mother Mary, no St. Christopher, no Joseph Smith of the Mormons, no Ellen White of the Seventh-day Adventists, or the many, many false prophets and gurus of our present day, preachers of the future. None of these is the Savior, for none qualify as God's anointed one, the Christ, except Jesus, who fulfilled the three essential ingredients necessary to the forgiveness of sinners, death, burial, resurrection. That's unique. Very unique. Now let's look briefly at these three ingredients of redemption as they apply to Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy. Firstly, Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's interesting. Many leaders of people have died throughout history. And their followers continue on today. Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha would be among this group. But Paul's point is not that Christ died. That's not his point. But that he died for our sins. And that according to the scriptures. Verse 3. This then is not just death as it comes to all men. Nor is it simply martyrdom as of a man dying for a cause. But rather is this death which has benefits which pass on to those whom Christ represents. And the area of benefit is spelled out for our sins. The whole idea of substitution is here. Christ died for, that is on behalf of others. The whole idea of redemption is in that statement, for our sins. The death of Jesus pays the penalty of God's wrath upon sin. And believe me, he has a wrath against sin because God is holy, infinitely holy. But Jesus' blood is spilt to placate God's judgment upon sin. Why? Because the statement of the scripture concerning God's position is this. The wages of sin is death. That's what you get for being a sinner. 
oh, wow, goody, this, no, this is not very good. Romans 6, verse 23. So immediately we understand that Jesus has come on a mission. And he's going to die, but not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. Okay, so, second question. Now, for whom did Christ pay this awful price of crucifixion? And what scriptures foretold this? Well, Paul says, Christ died for our sins. Okay, uh, Paul, but who are the hour when you say our sins? We would look at the context of this text and say, well, he's writing to the Corinthians, so if he says <clears throat> that Christ died for our sins... He obviously means the Corinthians plus himself. That would be an hour. Our sins. True enough. But is there not meaning here for us too in the fact that Paul says of the Corinthians that this gospel of the crucified Christ was something they received, I'm reading scripture, and in which they took their stand, verse 1, and by which they were saved, verse 2. Which they believed also, verse 2, unless their faith was spurious. Say, so what's the point? The point is this. Christ died on the cross, not just for the Corinthians plus Paul, but for all believers for all who would receive this gospel and take their stand in it. This is not, let me repeat now, this is not wholesale, indiscriminate, universal atonement being described here as though all men are saved just because Christ died. No, this is a redemption applicable only towards those who receive it and believe it. You will say, well, can we not say that Christ actually died for all men, but that his death is only applied to the believer? The biblical answer is, no, we can say no such thing. The salvation of God is not accidental. It's on purpose. And since it is on purpose, this is why specific prophecies can be linked to the selective atoning work of Christ. Christ did not shed his blood simply to provide salvation, I don't like that term, but provide it for the world. No, he died to actually procure salvation. 
for all who would actually believe. In other words, his death has a definite work which it accomplishes for our sins. For our sins. What I'm saying here, there is no such thing as blood spilt but unapplied or a redemption obtained but not utilized by sinners. Think of it. If you have a universal atonement, you have a universal salvation. But everywhere in Scripture, atonement is spoken of only in terms of those who repent and believe. And it's clear from Scripture that if Christ died for sinners, those sinners for whom he died will be saved. Let me give it to you in Jesus' words, lest you think I'm inventing some of this. Jesus, John 6, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose none, but raise him up on the last day. John 6, verse 39. Whoa. Again, to the Jews. Jesus said, You are not my sheep because you do not believe. John 10 verse 26. Is that what he said? No, he did not say that. That's the way we like to read it. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose none, but raise him up at the last day. What actually says was this. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. John 10 verse 26 and following. Brethren, the reason salvation is secure, the assurance of eternity, is due to the fact that salvation from start to finish is the result of an effectual atonement, an atonement which is on purpose and which is definitely appointed to all whom the Father gives to his Son, not any of which is left to chance or self-will, but as the Scripture attests, All that the Father gives me, says Jesus, shall come to me, and the ones who come to me I will never cast out. John 6, 37. And all this, as Paul says, is according to the Scriptures. Well, let me give you some of those Scriptures. Isaiah 53, wonderful chapter we love this chapter it's prophetic of the coming christ but here's what he says of the savior isaiah 53 verse 4 surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows 
he carried, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed. Now, of course, what has to be determined here is who are the our he's referring to. Our, our, our. It's made plain in the text. By the way, that's how you interpret scripture. You look at context. The verses before, the verses after. Then you come up with an understanding of what that verse in the middle meant. You don't just say, hmm, I think it means, no, no one cares what you think. God has spoken and he gives us a context. When you're reading something in history, a history book or whatever, you don't say, well, I think I'm going to change that. I don't like that, the way that turns. You have to take what comes in front of it and what comes afterwards to know what actually historically occurred. So, of course, what has to be determined here is who the hour refers to. It's made plain, like I said, in the context. He was cut off, I'm reading scripture, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Okay, does the phrase my people mean everyone in the world? Or is there something exclusive about that designation? Let's read the context, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Hmm. Not, not all? Just the many? As he will bear their iniquities... You mean the iniquities of the many, but not the all? Oh boy, we're getting in some tough territory here. Verse 12, Isaiah 53. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins, there it is again, of many... And interceded for the transgressors. Oh boy. If the words of scripture mean anything, it's clear that the prophecy of Isaiah 53 foretells that the suffering servant of Jehovah would be sacrificed on behalf of the people who would become the people of God by repentance and faith. And brethren, that's not universal atonement. He died for everybody. No, it's particular redemption and justification. Okay. Yet all of this is prophecy, right? We're in Isaiah, Old Testament, prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. So, we got to go to the New Testament to see if it all came true, right? Prophecy, Old Testament. 
New Testament fulfillment. Jesus says the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking now, I'm just quoting him. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, get it now, many. Did he say that? Yeah. Paul, in writing to the Christians of Rome, says of Christ's work, he was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Romans 4, verse 25. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, shall appear the second time not to bear sin to those who eagerly await for his salvation. Then Peter, in actually quoting from Isaiah 53, says of Christ, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. And Paul confirms Titus 2, verse 13, he wrote, Looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. You will say, Pastor, what bothers me are all those passages in which the word all is sometimes used to describe the work of Christ. I mean, even Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of all to fall on him. Oh, and what about 1 Timothy 2 verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. You're in trouble, Pastor. Well, let's talk about it. Must we always read the broadest application in the word all and every when we find them in Scripture? Stick with me now. The Bible allows the biblical authors to speak in the colloquialisms of their day. For example, Luke tells us, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken in all the earth. Hmm. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Luke 2, verse 1, verse 3. Now when Luke wrote that, did Luke mean to say, in his use of the word all, that every last person on the earth 
went to register for the census. In no way. He was referring to the decree of a Roman emperor, which was applicable only to those under Roman rule. All the earth refers to all the earth governed by Rome and under its laws. So don't get hung up on words like all and every. you got to look at the context. So in similar fashion, we would have to say that words like all and every are applied spiritually when dealing with the work of Christ. Scripture is clear that the atonement of Christ had specific people in mind. But in the mind of God, there's no prejudice. Ah, now we're getting to it. Thus of all that comprise the redeemed, John tells us, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, uh, and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lord, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Revelation 7, verse 9. That tells me that we can say that the redeemed of God consist of all types of people, all races, all nationalities. We can say that Christ is the only Savior of the world, by which we mean that he is the only Savior available to the world. There is no other. Thus the word all, sometimes used in Scripture, means all without distinction, all without prejudice. It doesn't always mean all without exception. Thus the scripture is true when it restricts the atoning work of Christ to believers only. You gotta be a believer. God does, however, call his people from men and women and boys and girls of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. The redeemed include black men and white men and females and males and noble and ignoble and educated and ignorant and backwards people and civilized people. And it is in this sense that we are to understand he gave himself a ransom for all. I love it. Not just white people are going to be in heaven, folks. Not just American Christians. Hispanics are going to be there. The Italians are going to be there. The black people of the Congo. Boys, they're going to be a whole reawakening in our hearts. Our prejudices are going to have to go to be a part of this glorious congregation that is coming.
Secondly, Paul tells us that the gospel teaches that Christ was buried according to the scriptures. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this except to say that the reference to burial serves two purposes in the gospel. Firstly, burial confirms the finality of death. (laughs) That just makes sense, doesn't it? The finality of death. That is to say, as long as people are still breathing, as long as their flesh is still warm and, and alive, we don't bury them. Not unless your name is Frankenstein. Secondly, burial is important in the gospel message as preparatory to resurrection. Did you ever think about that? Resurrection is for dead people. Mm. burial presupposes that they are really dead what is more resurrection is holy a divine act which reverses the last and final act of man burial is all we can do with dead people It shows our helplessness to do any more than to bury them. When my wife died there in the hospital, I wanted to kiss her goodbye. And when I did, her cheeks were ice cold. Her eyes were dull. And I didn't have to guess that she was dead and gone. What is more, there was nothing I could do about it. Oh yes, the nurse was there. They have the machine. What do you call that? The fibrillator. They shocked Donna many times at the hospital. Bam, 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 bam. I finally had to say to the nurse, stop, stop, she's gone. And I made a call to, right then and there, Muir Brothers Funeral Home, come get her, she's at the hospital. which he did do. It was over. 
I couldn't do anything to help her to change that. Burial is all that we can do with dead people. It shows our helplessness. Can't do anymore. The only hope left is open to the supernatural operations of God Almighty, the giver of life. Isaiah 53 verse 9 tells us, by way of prophecy concerning Christ, his grave was assigned to be with wicked men. Yet it was with a rich man in his death. You all know about pulpers' graves, don't you? We have them in Lapeer. There's a cemetery in Lapeer. For people who have no family, at least they can't find them, nobody comes forward to claim the body, and people die, and your brothers or others in that profession will embalm the bodies and they will take them to this pauper's grave site. Got to bury them. That's what we can do. That's all we can do. Can't resurrect them. But with Christ, he was buried to be with a wicked man but he was rather buried with the rich man in his death by God's grace this rich man came forward to Pilate and said I'll take his body give me his body his name was Joseph of Arimathea he had cut out of the stone the rocky crevice around Jerusalem his own tomb that he was preparing for himself. Someday I'm going to die. We do that, don't we? You should. You should have a burial thought in mind how you're going to, what's going to happen to your remains. This guy prepared a tomb for himself. But he was a believer in Christ when Christ was crucified. So I can't let this go on. I can't just have him go to pauper's grave. So he went to Pilate and he pleaded for the body of Christ. And Pilate said, done, you got it. And so he was buried with the rich man because this guy was rich. Matthew 27, verse 57 and following gives us the fulfillment. When I was, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Joseph took the body and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And thus Christ fulfilled his prophecy to the letter. 
By the way, another Pharisee helped Nicodemus. His name was Nicodemus, and he helped Joseph. And together, those two prepared Jesus' death sight. Finally, Paul tells us that the gospel includes the truth that Christ was raised, was raised according to the scripture. Let me give you the prophetic scriptures, some of them. Psalm 16, verse 10. Thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol means, Sheol means the place of the dead. You're not going to let me go there. Neither will thou allow the, thy Holy One to see the pet. This is the Son talking to the Father. Paul applied this to Christ when he preached at Antioch. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he was raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. He raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Acts 13, verse 30 and following. The Jews had this concept that get decay of a corpse did not start till the fourth day. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both being Jews, understood that. Christ was crucified. So they go to Pilate and said, we want his body. And so they obtained it. Now that was just Jews, that's Jewish history, but it's important to see that God even fits into the history so it becomes believable to the Jews. You know what would happen if they had waited till the fourth day? The Jews said, oh, no way. No one is ever raised to, to life after the fourth day or on the fourth day. But because it was done on the third day, it was believable to them. Jesus' own prediction is given in Matthew 12, verse 40. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster... So shall the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Paul says in our text, verse 4, He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And so we see that in all areas of the gospel prophecies, an atoning death, a genuine burial, a glorious resurrection, Jesus Christ alone fulfills all of these prophecies. Thus the Scripture converges on this one man in history who, as Peter is declared, be the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Peter should know, for we find him among the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. He says so, in verses 5 through 8. 
Paul preached in Acts 13.30. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. John tells us what was from the beginning, what we heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have beheld and our own hands have touched concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you also. 1 John 1, verse 1. No hearsay, no gossip. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And they could touch him. By the way, there's, in the, there's passages in the scripture saying that Jesus showed up for meals. So he could eat food and so forth. He was truly alive in every sense of the word. The historical evidence on the very day of resurrection, this is marvelous, is recorded for us in John 20, verse 19 and following. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, see, they thought they were going to be the next. Jesus was crucified by them. So, well, well, where does that leave us? They're going to be coming after us next. So they went into this room. They locked the doors. But we read, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands, his side, the wounds of the cross. And the disciples therefore rejoiced. It says, when they saw the Lord. But this business of resurrection was not kept a private secret. Jesus appeared to many of his followers. Well, the scripture says, 500 at one time on one occasion. Verse 6. That's a lot of people. Acts 13 tells us that Christ presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So we have here the very same men who walked and talked with Jesus when he was alive, same men confirming that the one who appeared to them and taught them for an additional 40 days was the very same Jesus who had suffered crucifixion and burial. Now, we must be prepared to call all these men hundreds of witnesses, liars, or or we must be prepared by their preponderance of evidence to believe their report. This was not done in a corner. The witnesses were overwhelming. Finally, what was the importance of the resurrection? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If you don't get anything from today's message, get this. If Christ has not been raised, I'm reading scripture. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep, those that have died in Christ, believing in Christ, when they died, they're all lost. That's how important the resurrection is to eternal life. Ah, we don't want anything to do with this miraculous stuff about Christ being raised. Who, who knows anybody about being raised from the dead? The work of Christ on behalf of his people is not only the cross, it's also the open tomb. Romans 6 and 3 and following. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might also walk in newness of life. For it is we Become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. There it is, folks. The promise of eternal life. The promise of heaven. And what Paul is describing here is the representative work of Christ for his people. You see, Jesus never acted on his own behalf. No, what he did, he did as our representative before God, as our substitute, a stand-in. Thus, when he was crucified, the believer was crucified. In this sense, Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6, our old self was crucified with Christ. When Jesus was buried, the believers shared in that entrance into the grave. Paul, again, we have been buried with him. Consequently, when Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that we shall also live with him. You see how all of this is woven into the work of Christ. Not our work, his work. So if the work of Christ stops at his death, if it stops at his burial, Paul says you are then still in your sins and those who have fallen asleep, that is they've died in Christ, believing in Christ, they're lost. That's how important the resurrection is. If the work of Christ stops at his death and burial and there's no resurrection, then Paul says to us, you're still in your sins and those who have fallen asleep, died in Christ, are lost. In Romans 4, he says he was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Salvation is not complete if death, which is the last enemy of our soul, has not been defeated once for all by our representative, our representative being Christ. 
If that's the case, then death wins and we lose. But the glorious note which Paul sounds in this text to comfort us, to reassure the Corinthian church is this. Verse 20. But now has Christ been raised from the dead. And as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ first, and after that those who are Christ that is, they belong to him, at his coming. Then comes the end, says Paul. Do you have this assurance this morning? Will you be able to claim to be one of Christ's disciples at his coming? If not, the gospel invitation is this. Listen to it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. See, that's the kicker right there. Convincing people to call on the Lord. Satan comes along and says, you really believe all that? And I ask, who are you going to believe? Satan, whom Jesus said was a liar from the beginning. What beginning? Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. Hey, Adam, what what do you know about God? Well given us this wonderful garden and he's allowed us we, he's told us we can eat from any tree we want in the garden except the one in the middle of the garden can't eat of that for on the day that you eat of that God told us you will surely die oh is that right said Satan I have no better reason God told you that is because God knows that when you eat of that tree in the middle of the garden, you'll be wise like God. And Eve said, hmm, wise like God. Who's wiser than God? But if I can be wise as God, I'll take that. And Adam, sitting right by her knee, says, Yeah, that sounds good to me. And Paul writes in Corinthians, They believed the lie, and in that moment became fools. Fools. Oh, 
chalk one up for the devil. Jesus says he was a liar from the beginning and did not abide in the truth. That's Genesis. That's the Garden of Eden. While he hasn't changed through all the centuries, still a liar. He's wanting to damn you all the way to hell. You think he wants to be there all alone? No. He wants to take as many people. Because he's also, Jesus said, he was a murderer. See, what he did to Adam and Eve was murdered them. Spiritually. May God help us to see in Christ there is salvation. Not murder, but eternal life. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for it. We thank you for the atoning work of Jesus. And on this day, we in particular see the power of Christ coming forth from the grave, victorious over death. I don't know of anybody that's come forth from the grave. They're in the scriptures. We read of some of them because you raised them from the dead. I don't see any hear anybody coming forth from the grave in our day. Pretty evident that death is final. There is a finality about it. We can't change that. But God can change it, for God is the giver of life. And Christ came that our sin, which is the killer that it is, might be defeated and we might receive eternal life. May we accept Christ in his gracious work of salvation. We don't have faith to believe this, Lord. We don't have repentance to turn away from our sin. No, we love our sin. But I pray that you will break our hearts. You will open our blind eyes and help us to see where that sin is leading if we do not repent and come to Christ. We need a Savior even if we think we don't. And there's only one Savior. You only had one son. And you sacrificed your son in order that we might be saved. Bless these truths to our heart. Save whom you will. In Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 220 in the brown hymnal. By the way, I chose this hymn this morning, not only for its message, but I was thinking Clara, Clara May, because Clara May came to me one Sunday after we had sung this hymn. She says, you know, Pastor, that's my favorite hymn. So I thought, she's enjoying what we're going to enjoy someday, and would be wonderful we are saying this hymn in her honor as well as the truth that's here in the text 220 in the brown hymn <laughs>
the case that you're living within our hearts. Clara May loved that song because it spoke to her of a living faith. I pray that our faith is living, that we're not succumbing to the lies of the evil one. There's death, yes, but then there's life after death, and the destiny of death is already determined. God has a heaven, but he also has a hell. Our faith in Christ will take us to glory. Our ridicule and blasphemy of Christ will take us to hell. Shall we believe God or shall we believe the devil? I pray, Lord, that you will work in our hearts. And this guy asked that if people here are questioning and they don't know what they believe or what to believe, Lord, show it to them. Help them to see. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If they never hear the word of God, they never read the scriptures, they'll never know. I think it's marvelous, Lord, that you've given us a whole book by which we may know the past history as well as the coming future. People can know what you're up to, the God of the universe. Don't have to guess at it. Bless these truths to our heart, we pray, and we thank you for our time of resurrection and, and thinking of that today, our fellowship that we had this morning, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.